welcome to At the Table, a play reading series, brought to you by Charging Moose Media. This week, we're sitting down with the playwright of Time to a Phantom, Zach Ezer. Be sure to listen to his fantastic play and our interview with cast members Ajani Salmon and Justin Schumann on previous episodes. Enjoy! We're so, so thrilled to be back this week with our interview, our playwright interview for the play that you heard last week. If you haven't heard it yet, stop this interview, go back, listen to Time to a Phantom by Zach Ezer. I hope you enjoyed it. I know you did. It was really, really good. It was good. so We were so <laughs> excited to have those two, Ajani Salmon and Justin Schumann, uh, our actors. And we're so thrilled today to be here with you, Zach Ezer. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Yeah, great to be here. So we uh, just got finished recording. Uh, our listeners heard this a week ago at this point. And um, what a beautiful play. Gorgeous. Man. No, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about when did you write this? What, what, what was the impetus for or the catalyst for jumping in on this? Sure. I wrote this in December of 2018. So I've it, uh, it's been a little while. I wrote it kind of, I wrote the play at the length that it is for a specific reason and also what it's about. I'd never written a 10 minute play before. I decided it was something that like, I, I'd been doing some research like, oh, that's a thing playwrights do. So I'm, <laughs> you know, let's see if, let me give it a try. Um, uh, and, uh, so I wrote this originally for a contest, uh, where it was like, we want 10 minute plays. And I'm like, okay, I'll write it so that I can submit to that. Blew through that deadline, didn't even come close. Uh, but then I had this for a while, you know, started, uh, you know, messing with it, tweaking it around. And then I kind of been, you know, sent it at places since then. And the reason I wrote it was because I kind of like, at least the non-supernatural parts lived it a little bit in the sense that like I am not from New York originally. I'm from uh, Houston, Texas. uh, And um, I've been living here since I graduated from college and everyone uh, at my school, like I think it's like statistically like a quarter of us moved to New York. Sure. And it is this like, there's this kind of like, I don't know, like, and we're like, we're, we're like a pretty lefty uh, school. I went to Wesleyan. uh, And so uh, that's about as lefty as they come. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of like, and there is kind of, I feel like some kind of uh, discrepancy between like the, like our idea of like left, our left politics and like kind of how we live. And so I kind of wanted to think about that. And so I lived in, it was my second apartment in New York. I've lived within the same eight block radius for the past uh, three or four years, but I moved apartments like every six months or so uh, for various reasons. Sure. So, but one one of the buildings we lived in, we had a. I, I'm Jamaican, my uh, American myself. My my mom was born in Jamaica. My grandma, like everyone on my mom's side of the family, is a Jamaican. And we had a Jamaican super, and he's somebody who like he was he was a very grumpy man. And I hung out with him like, semi occasionally. Uh, like I I think I was like pretty friendly with him. We were some of like the only like black people in the building. But like I found that like a lot of the white people in the building were kind of uncomfortable with him. And I sort of wanted to imagine what that relationship would be like sure. i guess uh and then i love genre and doing like things with uh like trope and uh science fiction fantasy horror all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so then i thought like you know that was my kind of way into taking one of those relationships and really making it kind of fantastical and interesting and something i feel like worth spending exactly 10 minutes on Exactly, Demis. What is it that you like so much about genre? I, I, even using the the term, kind of like genre, genre fiction, genre nar- narrative. What what do you like jumping in with there, or like exploring that you can't do in you know 
the the two people talking to each other genre. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I feel the, the, uh, the dining room table genre. Right. I think that because everyone is vaguely familiar with like these like ideas of um, of genre, it's this interesting way to talk about things that we know about through a way that is like a like pulpy, interesting in the sense that like everyone will, everyone wants to hear about a ghost, but then you can use <laughs> that to be about something else. I like my probably one of my favorite movies ever is uh, that movie is Jurassic Park. Uh, because yeah. it's sort of like no complaints from this side. Oh yeah, I mean it's great, and that's the movie that like unlocked it for me. It was sort of like it's about a guy who you know isn't ready for a family, but then dinosaurs teach him that he needs to be ready for a family. <laughs> sure, um, and I, I like I don't know maybe that's like that's how I read it at least. Um, that's the most a wonderful breakdown. That's an unbelievable description of Jurassic Park, and and very very true. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, I, I don't know. That's just what it is. That's what, like, genre fiction is for me. Like, what is it doing and why is it doing it? So yeah. that's why I feel like I love to play with genre stuff. Like, a lot of my other work is, like, about time travel or, exper- or like, a, like a, the Matrix-style experience machines or, like, things like that uh, or, or magic. Because I think that, like, all those things can be, like, things that we talk about uh, and to talk about, like, our real-world problems. Yeah, absolutely. There's... There's a lot of discussion academically about um, kind of like the underpinnings of horror being about two things. One, like a, a crisis of being human in the industrial age um, that like horror and penny dreadfuls and all of that came out of this response to all of a sudden being sort of out, out, uh, outsourced, um, you know, all of your work to machines for the first time. So what it actually meant to be human and also the idea of horror being uh, about a fascination with our insides becoming outsides. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that in this play for me that we start talking about the concept of the horror here is the daughter, right? Is like this loss of daughter. And there are a lot of things that it's um, worse to lose, right? Uh, but also that you do get these inside outside conversations living in New York um, uh, that are about, you're, you're very, very uh, confronted with, class issue or race issues in um, in your interactions in a way that a lot of New Yorkers choose to like choose to have the inside out uh, choose to have the outside conversation choose to have the kind of the superficial interaction or no interaction at all um, what do you think the central given all of that I was just these are things that came up for me when I was reading your play and it's why I was so uh, in love with it um, what is the central crisis of this 10 minute play and what does it mean to be a central crisis of a 10 minute play in general for you? Those are two very different questions I recognize, but I'm curious. That's fair. And I'm going to go for the like easy one first for me, which is the second one, which is that like, for me, 10 minute plays have to be, they like, they're about one thing. And like, can you, can you write one, can you write about one thing? Like, effectively essentially like make like like short films or anything that's like that short is sort of like have a point and like nail doing whatever point it is you're trying to make and how you're trying to make it in like as traditional for me at least in traditional structure as possible um so that like you can get your point like you get your point across i feel like i've tried to write 10 minute plays that are about too many things or are maybe like a little more like specifically character driven rather than point driven and i feel like it's easy for them to become too long or not about anything for me, like the point was, all right, I want to talk about the idea of gentrification and what it like, what the real cost of it is. And let's talk about that through talking about ghosts. Um, oh. And I and it was let's see if we can do that. I'm glad you brought up all like the horror academia stuff, because I do think about that constantly, uh, that kind of stuff. 
um like w- what is the importance of like media to our like to our actual society mm-hmm. um when i was in school my, my my thesis in school was was specifically about like what what does fiction do for us as society and i think one of the things it does is it, it makes us debate our values and it, it gives us like a forum to do that yeah um, and so that's kind of what I was trying to do. I'm also, I'm like a big philosophy person. Like in I, all of my stuff has like a philosophy backing to it. And so this one actually specifically is like, I just read a paper and I'm like, what if this paper kind of was a um, a play? It's um, this piece by uh, Mark Fisher. He wrote a, uh, he's a, a philosopher from the early 2000s. He uh, is no longer alive, um, but he writes a lot about um, kind of late capitalism. And the situations that he creates. And he specifically asked the question in the paper, like, is a ghost from the present or the past? And I kind of wanted to, like, explore what that would be like and, like, where a ghost would exist um, and, like, what kind of house it would haunt in, like, a, a late capitalism. Cool. What I loved about that moment, too, in the play, like, that moment where he asks, where where Kyle asks that question of Jerome is... And Rachel, you, you talked about it when we were in the reading. Of course, people don't hear your, your notes. We edit it down. But like there's this, there's the conversation and there's the tension, right? Like, and what I loved about that moment was regardless of the problem, it was the, the, for me, the time that Kyle truly connected in because the, like Jerome mentioned something that fascinated Kyle somewhere else. And they were able to connect on one level and the conversation becomes a normal conversation for three pages before it devolves. And there's something about that moment that I just adored. And I'm so, uh, I, I just wanted to point out that like what I loved about this piece overall was the in a 10 minute play, you often get one arc and this one really gives you a full journey, which is lovely for both characters. And I loved this idea of within the gentrification com- conversation is like Jerome has stakes in the toilet continuing to run in a way that he doesn't have stakes in Kyle, but he also wants to keep his job. Like I loved that kind of tension that lives in that space that allows that conversation to be a moment of true connection that for me, like listening to those actors go through it, listening to Rachel, give those notes, reading the play, like that hit me like a ton of bricks in this reading. And I'm just very, very thankful for you to have written it. Thanks. And I, I think it may not surprise you that that is actually the last part that I wrote. For me, it's the, like the, 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 like didacticism comes first where I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And I think that like, but then I then I'm like oh and now and I re- I read it back and I'm like oh that is so dry that's impossible like no one will ever want to like no one will sit and listen uh, so then I'm like okay but how now how do these people be people and I think that like for me people always have some like some things in common and so like it's about finding where especially like people who you wouldn't expect to have things in common have them which is that like especially because this is such a philosophy like based play for me is that like everyone's inquisitive and that's what philosophy is philosophy isn't like you know you know. I, I have Kyle studying ethnomusicology because that seemed like the most pretentious thing I could have him study. He, I, you nailed it. I also really love the idea of um, uh, uh, like a white 20 something DJ explaining how he needs to like um, eliminate the, ter- the deterioration in like a Robert Johnson recording to like a 50 something Jamaican man. Like it just, the, the like beautiful, complications of just that like two lines of dialogue it's like really really because that's the expectation that it leads me into i'm just gonna like tell you all of the philosophical uh, philosophical underpinnings that like i, I was enamored please, by in your show please. that's what this interview is gonna be um the <laughs> the piece that i because it is so rich for 10 pages which is frequently can be a a dangerous thing right it's like as you said like it gets to be so many ideas but with this 
it's about the gentrification idea and that's the horror. And there's something like lovely and very contemporary about being able to like make that into fictive art in like, you know, obviously we have like in a living in a post get out world like this, these are like, they get to be the ideas of like social horror um, that we're exploring, which is fun. And I don't think there's as much of it happening in theater because theater is frequently behind the times on things like this. But um, the gentrification horror is we woven through with this idea of um, different types of labor uh, because the, obviously we've got the labor of fix the toilet. We've also got the labor of uh, Kyle's asking him to bring comfort in a lot of ways about the, the concept of this, like uh, of the, of the idea of haunting and the idea, uh, but there's also this, this expectation of labor on Jerome where Kyle really doesn't want this complicated view of his own complicity uh, that we see all the time in New York. It's not just that I, I uh, want to be able to live wherever I want in New York City. I also really don't want anyone else to call me out for it. And when I want people to come in and fix my toilet, I'd really love them not to reference the, the, comp- the complexity of, of the interaction. Um, and that in itself is there's horror in that, right? Because the the expectation that we're asking people to communicate less than they're experiencing is is a late capitalist horror flick in itself, I think. Oh, absolutely. Like the mundane horror of like marginalization is is constant. And it's just like, I feel like I maybe at this point have mostly only done that, but like I could truly feel like I could do that for a hundred years and never run out of ideas. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sure. We would love to read them all. Yeah, please. Uh, you know, careful what you wish for. I've got, I like, I got at least three more. Hell yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Um, incredible. So, so can you tell us a little bit about some of your other work? What have you been working on recently? If you haven't been working on anything recently, there's no judgment in that. We're living in a global crisis. But like, uh, what have you been working on? To, uh, what it, what excites you to talk about? I okay. I'm gonna preface this with the I have written like 11 words since this whole thing started. Good uh, for you. I, Good. Like it has not been a, a writing moment for me. It's been very much a research moment. Um, cool. And I've been working on. I have two plays that are in various stages of development and working on things right now. And well, like a lot of that has been put on hold because of the virus and a lot of that. Like, um, but so I, I so I'm working on two things. One is. Uh, called 30 Hours, and it is based on uh, two real news stories, which is both about uh, the rapper P. Diddy. Um, In 2007, P. Diddy, on a a London interview, like radio interview, he claimed to have sex for 30 straight hours, like, and not, can I I swear on this? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Oh. Okay. Yeah. to be clear, and not like foreplay, and like engage in sexual activity. He said, like he was like, "I'd be fucking for thirty hours," um, and like, no, obviously not. Um, <laughs> why? And at the same, at the same time, <laughs> it's exhausting. Oh, right. It's it's nonsense for so many reasons. He didn't claim tantra like sh- like uh, Sting was doing for a while. He's like, nope. I just am that virile. Is like the, the whole thing. <laughs> Men uh, are the worst. Can we talk about that? <laughs> and I'm glad you said that because the other article is more of P Diddy being terrible, but like acutely terrible. Which is his personal chef was suing him at the time for sexual harassment because she would um, be asked to bring him food while he was in one of the having one of these marathons. Hi, <sighs> yeah. 
Phoenix. So the so what the play is is kind of um, it's about I'm I'm gonna maybe uh, let me know if you don't know the word slash want me to explain it because it is kind of it's a bit of a philosopher but it's gained a little mainstream popularity recently. Misogynoir. Yeah. Don't know him. So misogynoir is the idea that like it's essentially that the combination of racism and sexism is not sufficient to describe what happens to black women. There's yet, there's like the, the kind of the missing percentage or whatever it is of um, negative experience, marginalization that they experience is is called misogynoir. So it's the idea of misogynoir. So it's a play about that. So the play is the 30 hours during P. Diddy's supposed sex marathon. I have a, an actor playing P. Diddy upstage, essentially pantomiming sex for the entire show. Um, and then the main character is that personal chef and it's the 30 hours of her life that she experiences that f- ultimately culminates in the incident that she will later sue P. Diddy for. Holy hell. Huh. Uh, that said, it is a, it is a comedy. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, so it's about like kind of the surreal and weird experiences that come from being black, being a woman and being a black woman specifically. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a journey through that. Um, so that's kind of the, the big thing I've been working on for, a while and I so I read I'm reading just a ton of like you know um Afro surreal philosophy and things about like these weird instances and how they specifically like and how like life and marginalization specifically affects black women so I've been reading that for months and I'll probably be continuing to read it for months uh but that's kind of the the big thing I'm working on now and then I have another play that there's a theater in Manhattan uh called American Lore Theater okay uh they have commissioned me to write a play about folklore which they define as like living communities, living cultures. And it's about um, a group of pre-colonial uh, trans people in Hawaii. My family is from Hawaii. Um, my dad's side of the family. My mom's side of the family is Jamaica. My dad's side of the family is from Hawaii. And um, he lived there for you know, most of his life. Uh, we eventually moved to Texas uh, a little after I was born. But uh, he was a defense attorney and he would defend uh, sex worker cases. Uh, and they were, and there's one, uh, so this, this pre-colonial group is called the Mahu Wahine. And they're, in pre-colonial Hawaii, they were like the third gender. Like there were men, women, and Mahu Wahine. And they kind of became part of the mainstream trans movement around the 1970s. Uh, and so this is, uh, it's a story about specifically a uh, the case that kind of, gave them a lot more civil liberties to um, kind of join, join the mainstream trans movement and kind of gain some, some civil rights for themselves. Huh. That's amazing. What's that one called? Uh, so this one's going to be called the stones of life. It's named after a, um, a monument in Honolulu and Waikiki that is, is the Mahu Wahine in, in like Hawaiian legend were um, folk healers and they, they came from a different Island in Tahiti. And so there's a legend about how they came to um, Oahu uh, did a bunch of folk healing, were beloved by the people, and then they left this monument for the people, like, to remember them by, and also so that they, like, there's continued honor of those people as they, you know, emerge in Hawaiian society. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, kind of a, a folky, uh, a folk thing. It's a courtroom, it's kind of like, a, it's a courtroom buddy drama where there's, like, a, um, it, the defense attorney and the um, the Mahuahine client are the two main characters. It's about like their friendship as they um, kind of work together to get the, uh, to win their case. Could you talk a little bit, um, uh, if you're comfy with it, uh, how you approach research, right, about marginalized identities outside your own lived experience? Because you're talking about Noir, you're talking about trans, uh, pre-colonial trans communities. Um, uh, 
Is that a pro- is that process of research of writing different for you? Does it involve additional steps or additional just processes? Oh, a thousand percent. Which is that like when I write something that's like, you know, about like my own lived experience or about like, you know, or just like if I'm just being honest, like about white people, I'll just I'll just write it. Yeah, sure. Like, what's, what, what's the idea? Let's do it. Um, yeah. But when it's research is who, everywhere where you're look, when you're looking for white lived experiences, like you don't have to go too far. American culture is white lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I got a good uh, 25 years of that. But uh, <laughs> when it comes when it comes time to write about something that like I don't know anything about, especially when it comes to writing um, identities that are either further marginalized than mine or marginalized in different ways, um, that that of course is like a, it's a much deeper research process and it involves a lot more. I think like living t- like living research and talking to people rather than like being able to like read books and things things like that. So as far as the misogynoir goes, uh, like that, that specifically, a lot of that comes in like talking to like the black women in my life, talking to and reading about this, like re- not only reading about this top down because I like it's important to know how this affects like societies at large, but also like in, in individuals. Um, and it comes like and also like you know as far as sensitivity readership goes, I like you know as far as when I when I uh, finish scripts, I don't really have a lot of like. I guess men who read my scripts or or white people for like these purposes, like I'm like, oh, it's it's kind of in in draft form right now. Um, the people I, I I trust people usually who have more experience uh, in with with that stuff. And as far as the uh, pre colonial trans community stuff goes, that started from the legal perspective because my dad, who right, is a my dad is a, he, he's a he's a cis man, and so we did so it started with a lot of interviewing of him, talking to him about that. But then luckily, American lore is uh, great because they want to connect you with that community. And so they've been um, on, on my behalf, finding me like old first person accounts um, and things like that. And also we've been we've we've reached out to a lot of folklore organizations in Hawaii to talk you know, with me about this and making sure I do the story justice. Because that's that's I think the most important thing is like, do you do these story when you tell stories about communities that aren't your own, are you doing this story justice? Um, are, how are you relating to it? And are you being able to like, you know, promote people and, and, uh, causes that matter to you? I like, especially from like a dramaturgical perspective, I'm only interested in like dramaturgs and, uh, key collaborators that are, you know, from these groups. So that like we have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, uh, sure. like from a first person perspective. Does it, this is, I know a little bit of a, it can be a, a dicier question for writers, but does it ever enter into the equation of whether of which stories you should be writing and advocating for? Or do you think that the level of care that you're bringing in more formal sensitivity readership, things like that, doesn't it doesn't negate the need to pass along stories? But like, does that does that enter into the equation for you at all? The consideration of writing the stories themselves? I, I think it definitely does. And there, uh, and these are, it's, I usually actually don't write about identities that are more marginalized than my own. I, and I, when I do, I need a kind of the way in for me, at least in a way that like makes sense, which is that like, for me, it's like the, the, the stones of life is about kind of a moment in history and the like kind of coalition that like made it happen if that makes sense yeah it i like and and as a result which is it like i don't claim to understand the like i don't claim to understand the pre-colonial hawaiian trans experience i think that it is something that like this is a story that they that is about as much 
of the like relation to that community as it is like the community as a whole. And I feel like I would never like, and the, I would never presume to tell, right. Like tell a story from a perspective. I think that like, Mm -hmm. it's important, but for me, I'm very interested in like a writing, um, these characters into the American theater in the sense that you don't see them very often. I think sure. that is some of my duty as somebody with privilege is to write these characters uh, into existence in a, in a way that is respectful so that like, you know, it doesn't become a kind of ghettoized thing where only trans folks write trans characters. Yeah. Um, I think doing that is important. Uh, but I think that also then, right. I can only, I can only, I guess, do what I can do uh, in that case, which is that like, I can, I am very interested in writing these characters and doing it respectfully um, but I would never, you know, tell their story as their story. I can only sure. tell the story kind of as it is relational, which is why that like kind of our point of view character into the world is I uh, is the defense attorney who is um, based on a composite of defense attorneys, but also my father a little bit. Yeah, of course. That's amazing. And I love that this uh, set of conversations is happening, especially at the theater um, uh, level. Like I'm thrilled that this was a commission. This is very, very cool to me because I think that theater is doing this it feels not even like we're having bad conversations about it. I feel like we are just actively uh, bum fuzzled about these things. Like we're not the, the conversation, like it feels very strongly. And obviously this is a, a large, largely due to the fact that the majority of producers, even at the nonprofit level, obviously are, um, are white and uh, coming from a very specific um, socioeconomic background as well. And as a result, I just wish more of these conversations were happening um, about how to do this thoughtfully. Um, So it's very, very cool to get to hear you talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, I I definitely agree. I think this is something that feels like we, as like, the theater is going to exist in a way that we we know we need more and are and need and definitely are and working on like more diverse and marginalized stories, um, stories of marginalized people. And I think that like, the idea that you are only ever exclusively going to be able to write exactly what's happened to you, something that we know we can't limit it that much, but there needs to be like, these negotiations need to be happening. And it is something that like, I'm really glad we are having these conversations. I'm curious to see how robust that becomes kind of over time as sort of, we see what, what, what makes sense and what seem to be like kind of guidelines for how to do this. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. All right, Ned pivot. My, my pivot's really small. It's, you know, we're, we're all here in New York. Rachel's up in Harlem. I'm down in Flatbush here in, in Crown Heights. I'm, I'm kind of just wondering how you're doing in all this. I know you said you, you haven't been writing, but I'm curious what's been getting you through. I know we asked the snack question and that was on the last, the cast interview, because in a rare occurrence, our playwright was able to be part of our reading today, which was so exciting. But what, what is, what's been taking your time to help you kind of get through this? What's, what's been your, your method, if there is any? Yeah, I mean, I think Johnny said something about deep work, and I think that that I have a, a like it, rather than time, I try to do like one thing a day. Sure, that like is going to be like let's 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 if I can do this, I'll feel like the day's not wasted, and I can no longer like flagellate myself about like being unproductive or whatever. Yeah. So I'll like try to read. I don't know. Flagellating myself is how I'm passing a lot of time recently. So. <laughs> But and see, that's been the issue is with, I, I do have a lot of empty time now that I'm not, you know, castigating myself for being terrible and lazy. <laughs> wow. I guess I could take up a hobby, but I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'll try to read an article or like watch. I, I recently um, got Criterion, the like streaming for Criterion. So I'll yeah. like 
watching a classic film, which is, I love watching old movies and like, like important movies, but also it, like, it's just difficult enough with like, if it's like a, a foreign film from like the fifties or something like that to, for me to be like, that was work. That counts. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Anything hard is work right now. For sure. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. And also like making myself breakfast is work. All things are work, honestly. Oh, yes. And also my therapist would say that means that all things can be rewarded. You can be pleased with yourself for having pulled off any number of things right now, including brushing your teeth. But can I write off anything on my taxes because it's all work? Ooh. See, that's a great question. It truly feels to me like maybe all um, infrastructure is like tumbling. So like write off whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like society's crumbling and here we all are. And for those of you listening at home, yes, you should take my financial advice. I am licensed to give you <laughs> sound, sound tax advice um, as a musical theater performer in New York for, for 11 years. Um, Zach, can I welcome. ask you a personal question? Because you excited Absolutely. me with, with your love of sci-fi and genre. Uh, I am putting together like my master list. We had a, a, a wonderful playwright a couple weeks ago who gave us a, a list of books that are now on my list that I'm slowly beginning to work through. But what, what's like the, the, the sci-fi genre content you love that I should definitely consume in the next week? So my favorite, favorite, and I recommend this to anyone who listens to me for even one second, is if you have not seen the movie Big Trouble in Little China, it is the greatest genre film ever made. It's also just so good. It's, it's a perfect film. I love uh, it. I, I, I watch it maybe every year since I first saw it, and I, uh, I can't stop thinking about it. Great. Um, I love um, the films of Stephen Chow, if you have seen any of those. He made, my favorite one is his most, uh, I think it's his second most recent one, The Mermaid, but he's much more famous for having made Shaolin Soccer. Um, oh, yeah, he, sure. he's Yeah. I, the Mermaid is a much more like fantastical sci-fi thing. It's about a like ma- is like about a magical mermaid. Uh, but he is the maybe the great physical comedian of our time. So I will watch oh. anything that he possibly does. Awesome, cool. The Mermaid done. Bad yeah. genius, yeah. Do you watch garbage? I'm so fascinated because everything you've said, everything you've said has been so incredible and like awesome. It hasn't been, I don't want you to mistake this for a comment where I'm saying what you're listening, uh, what you're mentioning is like uh, highfalutin or, or, or pretentious. It's incredible. Like you have such good taste. What are you enjoying that's awful? <laughs> uh, okay, so I mean... I should like I I recently rewatched uh like Bad Genius a couple of days ago. I did it in a double feature with this just absolutely like trash horror movie called Death Bell from South Korea. It is <laughs> Death on Hulu. Bell? It, it Death Bell. It's on Hulu and here's what it is. It's about a um group of like really like the extra smart kids, like the smartest kids are called into school on a Saturday and then saw style they're getting murdered one by one if they can't answer like high school math and English questions. <laughs> That's incredible. Yes, that is the answer I was looking for, Zach. Great. (laughs) Yep. I don't know. For every good thing, there's some terrible stuff. I'm I'm a Riverdale fan. I love Riverdale. Uh, Uh, See, there it is. That's the one that we can connect for trash. I I didn't know the others. I'm excited to check them out. But Riverdale, I can get behind a a trash view. I'm a massive Riverdale fan. We watched, uh, my partner and I just watched the the Hedwig episode that just came out. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I will I will ride that train all the way to like below rock bottom, wherever they're going. I'm down. <laughs> Absolutely. That's fantastic. That's delightful. Yeah, I got no more. That's wonderful. I got, oh, you did mention, any- you mentioned uh, seven layer chocolate cake uh, yes. that uh, was really doing it for you. So I'm going to switch gears on this episode and ask you if there's a saltier, savory snack that or food that's been really doing it for you. So yes, it, but snack is a weird word, which is it. Okay. So I sometimes, not sometimes, I do this like twice a year. Uh, I will buy large amounts of meat on the internet uh, because it's cheaper. <laughs> uh, and so I have That's a so bunch good. of, in, I have a bunch of internet meat uh, uh, in my freezer right now. Internet uh, meat is actually I'm, Ned's drag name. Drag name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm actually in a band and we have a song called Internet Meat and it's so about me buying You're in a internet. band? How did you bury this band. lead? Wait, <laughs> is Zach cooler than anyone we've ever spoken to? Yeah, he's, we have a, Rachel, we made it. We said from the beginning, we just want to talk to someone in a band and look at us. Look at uh, us. That, that is me. I, I, I play drums in, a, in an indie rock band called Harper's Landing. We're uh, mastering an EP right now, so it'll be out sometime during this quarantine. And you will have a link to that on our website so that you can listen to Harper's Landing listeners. I am so excited. That is great. Wait, you're mastering in an EP and you're telling me you're doing nothing during this quarantine? Come on. Yeah. Oh, because that's good. I, I'm not mastering it. Someone else is doing that. And I'm just like louder, softer. Sure. <laughs> uh, I, I that's work. Wanna- Talk to me about uh, your you know band. What? What's your indie rock style? What's your what's your feel? What's your jam? How do you what what's your thing? Tell me about that. Sure. I love music. Um, I, Who me too? We are from so I'm the only one of us from Texas. The other two guys in the band are from Long Island. And so they're big and they've infected me, which is that they're big fans of, like the Long Island emo scene from the time, which is that like Taking Back Sunday, um, you know, brand new, that that like genre of music. So it's like a big, a healthy dose of that. And then I am an old school punk guy. So there's a lot of oh, like, um, yes. I'm like, I, I really like, like early Ramones, Sex Pistols, um, like the like really like classic punk stuff, Bad Brains. Um, and I'm going to, and like death. So it's like a lot of like old punk mixed with like, you know, like a lot of, um, you know, uh, backing vocals that are like very melodic. Like if we had, if I had to pick a band that we sound like, we sound like uh, by average is like Bad Religion. Great, great band to, to put yourselves in a sound like. That's where yes. can we find the band? Where can we find you? We where are can we on find band the band. Oh, oh, let me let me do all of all the socials. Give, all right, yeah, I'm, do it. Your Plug yourself. I am on Twitter at my government name at Zachariah Ezer, uh, which is also like what I I I am Zach in in verbal, but in print always Zachariah is kind of how I how I have stylized my life. Um, I am on Instagram at Zach.Ezer. Uh, my you know government name was taken. And um, <laughs> the band is at Harper's Landing, H-A-R-P-E-R-S Landing, L-A-N-D-I-N-G dot bandcamp.com where, uh, you know, uh, we got that one. We're named after the fictional town in BoJack Horseman where his parents live. Incredible. Everything that you just said is incredible. All of Zach's uh, social media links, all of the Bandcamp, all of the information about where he gets his sources, his internet meet, will be available on our website for you to check out. Uh, Ned, what is our website? Our website is chargingmoosemedia.com slash at the table podcast. 
Yes, uh, an internet link that both of us know very well and never screw up. Definitely not me. Fantastic. Zach, thank you so much for being here today. It was rad to talk to you. Your play is great. I hope we get to do more of your plays very, very soon. Uh, thanks for having me. No, it was great to be here. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Zach. This was amazing. You're rad. Your play is rad. Everything we just talked about is rad. And now I'm going to go listen to Harper's Landing? Hell yeah. Yeah. We got we got a couple of demos for now. First EP out in a month and a half. Oh that. man! Sweet. So it's it'll actually it'll actually time out really nicely with when this is airing. With when this airs, yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Fantastic. Um, everyone, stay safe out there. Uh, go get some snacks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, folks. You've been listening to At the Table, a play reading series produced by Charging Moose Media. For more information on this week's playwright, Zach Ezer, visit our website at chargingmoosemedia.com slash podcast. Link also in the show notes. We are hosted by Rachel Flynn and Ned Donovan. Our artistic director and senior producer is Rachel Flynn. Editor is Ned Donovan. Associate producer is Megan Bagala. Music by Marcus Thorne Bagala. You can find us on social media at At The Table Plays. Please connect with us. See you next time.